Welcome to the PESOL, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Nerds. Now let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to the PESOL. Today's show is brought to you by Mars University. Knowledge brings fear, so learn everything you can at Mars University. Welcome everybody to the PESOL. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is the film podcast for filmmakers and film lovers alike. And today we have an incredibly special guest. We have Key Shan with us. Key is a screenwriter, podcaster, New Yorker who shrugs. Uh, and so I am ecstatic to, uh, to bring Key onto the show. Welcome to the podcast, Key Shan. Thank you. I'm so, so happy to be here. So excited to do this podcast with you guys today. Really exciting. So you have been podcasting. You People should know that we have the pestle only because of Key. You have a podcast with your husband, Clyde, and y'all have been doing it for a while. And I started listening to y'all's podcast. The Originally, it was called Pilot Watching, and y'all started you know, just covering TV show pilots because y'all are connoisseurs of TV pilots. And so y'all had a very specific angle and listening to you and Clyde, I was like, man, that sounds like so much fun for a million reasons. I want to do it now too. And so Todd was game and they're, you know, blasted off. How many podcasts are you running right now? What's that landscape look like? Two podcasts right now. So the TV pilot watching podcast, we renamed it to call it great TV, good talk. And that probably only has about 70 episodes. We've taken a break from that, from that because our other podcast is show specific. It's a podcast about This Is Us. And that takes up all of our time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a much more robust community over there. So we, we have a lot of uh, community engagement to, to do. Where do you all engage your community? At? Mostly in our Facebook and Twitter pages, a little bit on Instagram. But it's uh, show night. It's definitely very heavy. The day after the show, the comments start uh, rolling in. So we interact a little bit during the show, but I basically post and then they they just go for it. And it's amazing. You're also from New York. What part of New York are you from? So I've lived in Brooklyn, Queens and Manhattan. And I also have a dream about living in the Bronx, but my parents have not confirmed that yet. I dated a lot of guys in the Bronx. Maybe that's why. So, uh, yeah, all over. Nice. And lastly, screenwriting. First of all, what got you into screenwriting? Why do you? Why are you screenwriting and what's that life look like for you right now? Yeah, so I was always a writer from a kid and I also went to photography camp as a kid and didn't really put those two together until my senior year in college. I took a screenwriting class and I decided I would not sleep after that. I needed to consume all the media and all the things and all the scripts and finally went to grad school because my roommates were sick and tired of hearing about me talk about the filter on CSI Miami. They were like, you need some friends to talk to about this. So I went to uh, the new school for media studies and through that got some internships at a couple of film studios and a couple of TV networks. But it's always been the writing for me. Like anytime I had downtime, even in production, if I could get to, you know, a very secret hard drive and read scripts, you know, from Focus Features. Thank you, Focus Features, for doing that for me. I would do that. And so now that I've been in Austin, I've worked on some independent films, started podcasting, but the writing has always been it for me. So I've been writing consistently for the past three years again, and I'm just loving it. It's so good. Yeah, and I haven't read enough of your work to really understand the before and after, but I know you're talented. I got to, you, you allowed me to come in on your This Is Us podcast and play Kevin, one of the, the main characters. And your, what do we what do we call that? Uh, spec script. You wrote a spec script for This Is Us. Yeah. And it was really fun. It was really well written. A lot of personality, nailed all the characters. And so I've seen your work. You're, you're good, man. And so I can only imagine, we talk about this a lot. You work harder than I do. You work so much harder than I do that I'm just waiting. I don't agree with this. Oh I don't agree God, with this sentiment. Beyond true. Like I get paid to to work on projects that I'm not necessarily always excited about. And so I don't know how much it's furthering my actual end game. Whereas you are writing full complete scripts, you know, and working on new concepts and so I'm really like, I've always been inspired and impressed by, you know, your work ethic and your like focus. And it's something that I try to, you know, draw inspiration from and push myself like key, key wouldn't be taking this day off. Like I really do. I, I think in those terms. Uh, you, you were great. Thank you so much. I appreciate all that. 
Yeah, too humble. Look at you. I have a que- I have a question. So, Key, what do you have a style like a, a writing style or or a genre that you prefer in like drama? Yeah, definitely. I tend to do TV dramas, usually with a small ensemble cast set in an apartment building. <laughs> it's probably part of my New York That's sensibilities. Very specific. It is, specific. but I, yeah. I realize at least three of my my TV pilots have people in close quarters. Like I just like that ability to bump into each other and, you know, have arguments in the middle of the hallway, you know, at inappropriate hours of the night. I just I really I tend to do that. But yeah, TV dramas in general, um, some family centric, some friend centric, but that's usually where I lean. Okay. Every time I try to write comedy, it turns into a drama. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> Yeah. Well, comedy is comedy is its own thing, right? We've talked about that on, on the podcast here. Comedy is very, in some ways, might be more considered more difficult than writing drama. I certainly think so. I certainly yeah. think so. But I have friends who think that drama is incredibly nuanced and but for me comedy definitely seems hard I I think it also depends on the type of comedy you're writing you know are you doing joke after joke after joke or is it more dramedy style where you know there's a little bit more of a depth of story for some of those things so we will see if I acquire those skills at any point in my life I do not know okay I admire those people though, for sure. More Melrose Place than uh, Friends, huh? Nice. I'm really excited to to have you on just because the film that Todd's about to announce here in a second, I felt like just screened for Key and I'll explain that, I guess, here in a minute. What are we going to do today, Todd? Today we're covering Do the Right Thing, a Spike Lee film. So if you haven't seen it, pause this episode, go watch it, and then come back because we're going to spoil a lot of stuff. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about a few things. We'll touch on cinematography how the infamous Rosie Perez title sequence sets the style for the movie and kind of uh, speaks to the the format of the movie itself. I uh, will also touch on writing and story, how Spike wrote some very rich characters and complex relationships and how that all feeds into the story itself and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a quick synopsis of the film. On the hottest day of the year, on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's Hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. Written and directed by Spike Lee. Cinematography by Ernest Dickerson. Starring Spike Lee as Mookie. Danny Aiello as Sal. Ossie Davis as Demare. Ruby D as Sister Mother. Bill Noon as Radio Rahim. Steve White as Ahmad. John Turturro as Pino. Joy Lee as Jade. Roger Guinevere Smith as Smiley. And Rose Perez as Tina. This is nice, man. Cut this shit out. Nah, man, who told you you were the man of this block? See, double poison. Man, you leave the man alone. Shut Damn. up. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, look. Damn. Y'all leave me alone. Ah. I ain't going out like that, man. You walk up and down this block like you own it. For real. Yes, I know. You so old, you like a fossil. Man, you a bum, man. You're an old drunk zero, man. <laughs> now what do you got to say for yourself? What you know about me? Can't even pee straight. Nary a one of you. What you know about anything? Unless you... Unless you done stood in the door and listened to your five hungry children crying for bread. And you can't do a damn thing about it, your woman standing there. You, you can't even look her in the eye. Unless you done done that, you don't know me, my pain, my hurt, my feelings. You don't know shit, Don't call me bum. Don't, don't call me a drunk. You all I got the sense of God give a belly go. Don't call me nothing. It's disrespectful. I know your mamas and your papas raised you better. Yo, man, I hope you finish your little soliloquy, man. Because first of all, I've been peeing straight for years. You understand what I'm saying? And, and you're right. I, I wouldn't stand in the doorway and listen to my five children go hungry. I'd be out getting a job, doing something, anything to put food in their mouth. And you're right. I don't want to know your pain. I don't care to know your pain. You're the one to put yourself in this situation, man. Every day, every day, every day, I see you walk up and down this block, inebriated. Never sober. But that's what DA stands for. Demaya. Drunk ass. So many questions and places to start. I have big questions for Todd, but I, as a matter of principle, we usually begin with the guest. So I'm curious, key specifically for you, I don't think we've ever talked about Spike. I've known you for a while and I can't remember if we've ever really talked about Spike. So I'm curious for one, what are your feelings about Spike Lee in general as a filmmaker and writer? And two, what is your feeling in relationship 
with uh, Do the Right Thing. Spike is definitely one of the reasons that this industry appealed to me. But I didn't see his films, you know, in the order they came out. I think the first thing I was introduced to was 25th Hour. And I was blown away, done. I was amazed at that. And then Do the Right Thing, every time I watch it, I like it more. It just doesn't... It doesn't fail for me. And so I'm definitely a fan here. Well, and for Do the Right Thing, like, what is it about it that really speaks to you? How, do you relate to it from a, on a New York level at all? Or because you came into it so much later than probably a lot of the fans? Definitely came into it later. I, I absolutely relate to it because the heat of a New York day is so oppressive. I know we live in Texas and it is ridiculous here and it can actually get to 120, but there is nothing like New York heat packed between buildings. Walking outside, it's just, you just, you feel like you're in a cage. But on top of that, a lot of New York buildings don't have central air. And so you don't have situations where you're just able to pump it through your apartment, through your home. Usually a lot of older buildings will have units. And so I actually just have many stories of air conditioning woes. I remember after college, my friend and I, we just walked through Times Square and Times Square is so they make so much money there that they can literally leave their stores open and blast the air into the street. So you actually don't have to go in to get a break from the heat. You just walk past these really expensive stores and will be blasted by air conditioning all day long in the summertime. So yes, I relate to it on so many levels. Just the centralization of characters, you know, in this in this intersection. There's just there's so many good things about it. And I think it has aged so well. It's funny, like you you bring up a really good point because we as Texans just kind of went through and maybe at the end of the episode we can all recount our experience with this winter breeze that we we just got hit with. But in Texas, right, we're we're not built to retain heat inside of our house because the heat in the summers is so oppressive and so much more enduring that our houses are more built to dispel heat and allow for the cooling to kind of happen. So whenever we do get hit with these sub-zero temperatures or whatever, like we get hurt so much more and we're our infrastructure isn't built for it. And I think similar on the East Coast, especially in somewhere like New York, y'all are built with so much more insulation to to retain your heat. So whenever the, the heat in the summer hits, y'all don't really have the housing set up that allows for that heat to kind of go through. And a lot of that's kind of lost. Like us Texans watch and do the right thing. We don't understand how the the heat impacts a New Yorker um, and how atypical some of those hot, hot days are and, you know, context of the rest of your year. And so that's a very valid point, especially, you know, in context of the film being about how bad conditions temperamentally can contribute to the boiling over of tensions and the exhaustion of the people in, in a social setting like that. Nice. We'll come back here in a second because I feel like you're still only like barely touching the surface. And so I, I'm curious, Todd, I don't know how much experience you have with Spike, but I'm dying to know based on all, so much of our general conversations. Does this movie land for you or did it take work <laughs> for you to like get into it? <laughs> yeah. OK, so I'd never seen this film before. I, I love Spike Lee films. I think he's a genius. He was ahead of his time for sure. I've always liked him because there's really no rule book for him. Like it feels like whatever he feels like doing in that moment, that's what he's going to do. And I almost kind of compare him to Tarantino in that regard, you know, because both of them, you really don't know what you're going to get at any point. Right. And he has, they both have their style, but stuff can change very quickly. And yeah, so at the beginning, the, the title sequence, I, you know, I had never seen this film before. So you know, I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm not an 80s fan. Don't like 80s at all. Hip hop is probably the only thing that saved the 80s for me. Like, I just, I think it's cool. But other than that, like, I just hate everything else about the 80s. So I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> and it was so long. It was so long. And they just never cut away from it. Just let it happen the whole time. So what I will say is in the moment, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be painful. But then looking back on it, like he said, actually, I kind of loved it. It was cool. It was like nothing I had seen before because most directors don't want to take five minutes to show someone dancing as at the beginning of a film. Like, here's five minutes of this dance. But like you said earlier, I feel like set the tone for it is like, this is the period that we're doing this in. Here's 
all the dances that you're going to remember in 30 years. <laughs> she like went through them all. Like she did all these like iconic dances and there was so much culture in it too. It, it just felt really rich, even though it was long, but it felt rich. And then the film itself started, it started slow for me, but it grew on me throughout. And I'm glad you played that scene because that scene in particular was a turning point for me in the film. The film felt pretty light until then for me. And then it was like, almost like that was a dividing point between here's everyone is dealing with this hot day. Everyone is dealing with, you know, either anger or, or, you know, racial divides or just like, you know, hating their lives at this point or whatever they're dealing with it, but they deal with this every day. But then at that point, it felt like after that things started really being too much for everyone and, and started, people started going over the line and stuff. It was almost like that was the first time Demare had gotten told out by someone. And up until that point, we just thought he was kind of like this lovable drunk guy who's just on the street. Right. But then, Oh no, there's, there's emotion behind that with other people living in the, on this block. Right. And like you mentioned earlier, how, how rich his characters he writes his characters. And I felt like that was a really great moment of letting this be very real and visceral and giving us a lot of information in a very short amount of time, not only about Demare, but also, or that character who was getting really angry, but just about the vibe of the place and the time in general. So long story short, I loved it. It started slow for me. It was a slow burn, but I, you know me, I love slow burns as long as they lead somewhere. And this absolutely led somewhere and made me think the entire way through, especially from, I feel like from that point on. Yeah. I mean, I generally agree with, you know, everything y'all are saying, the more you watch this, the better it gets. Cause that first yeah. time through, it's very strange. This isn't like, it's not built to have beautiful cinematography and I'll touch on why that is, you know, later, but it's, it's built to bring these characters to life. And to allow you to kind of have a slice of life of what it's like in Bedsty, and to experience this culture and experience all these characters and to allow every character to just be who they are because none of these characters really feel like puppets. I feel like in a lot of, you know, movies that are trying to make a social commentary, all the characters are really just puppets for the screenwriter and they're just dancing around in order to accomplish a goal. And I felt like Spike took a far more complex approach to this. He allowed all the characters to just be fully who they are and to represent whatever worldview that kind of spawns out of that. And so I just really enjoyed you know, hanging out with everybody. And the more you watch it, the less you start feeling like, I don't know, violated by the cinematography and more like you just enjoy these settings and these scenarios and how silly he is. Like Spike is such a funny actor to me. And I wish I saw him more in movies because he does these weird, hilarious, idiosyncratic things in his characters uh, across films where he'll do this kind of dead, dead look where he's not blinking. He's not, he's barely blinking sometimes and he's just not even moving. And he's just kind of staring off into the distance <laughs> and it kills me because if you don't know what he's doing or in to some degree, no one knows what he's doing, but you also understand this is just this kind of quirk for Spike and his uh, sensibilities. He's just an, he's not ball and he kind of defies any stereotyping that someone might have of, Oh, you're a black dude from Brooklyn. Like, eh, yeah, and no, like he's a bigger product. He's much more than that. And it all kind of screams out through his work. And especially through his acting, I just fall in love with his silliness and his willingness to explore all these ideas and complex sociopolitical worldviews. Like none of it is boilerplate and none of it is, you know, reductive. And I definitely want to go into that. But from a writing standpoint, Key, what do you take away from watching something and the way he writes his characters and his ideas? Yeah, you know. This is like a study that it just takes m much longer than I would have expected it to. You know, like I watched it, I rewatched it, I started to read the script, I started to, you know, just like research it a bit more. And every time I go down this path of trying to learn more about it, I just realize there's so much to learn about it. His characters are amazing. They're amazing. Even the naming of them are amazing. I mean, bugging out. Like he just, he has so much fun with what he does. I think in reading the script and rewatching it in the last week, what I realized is how much foreshadowing he does. And you don't know that until you watch it a second time, especially with 
the characters of Sal and Pino. Like I just was amazed at just how things kind of came full circle. I remember there's a point, this is like page four in the script and it's minute 10 and about 30 seconds into the the movie. So I'm not really sure why that lines up the way it lines up. But Sal says, I'm going to kill somebody today. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> that's amazing that that wow. was said that early. You know, and of course that was said very casually, but mm-hmm. we all know how it ends. And so I, I, I just have a lot of respect for how he makes things come full circle. And I really enjoyed the descriptions that he wrote, you know, just like scenes and character descriptions he wrote because I felt like I was watching it again when I was reading it. And I don't always feel like that when I read a script after I see a movie. Sometimes it feels a little bland, but his words pop off the page, definitely. He's got such a weird, silly sensibility when it comes to like the naming conventions are like funny and perfect at the same time. And even the way he has some of his characters talk, like Samuel L. Jackson DJ, what is it, Dr. Love, or I forget. Yeah, I'm, I'm already forgetting his name, but like he'll have him say these weird, hokey little phrases, right? And that's the truth, Ruth. Like that's both ironic and like honest. It's, I feel like Spike is just kind of being jokey and ironic in a way that is also like conducive to the character he's writing. Absolutely. And so it's very complex and like thoughtful and fun at the same time like that's hard to do and he he wrote this in two weeks he wrote it in two weeks like i whoa i didn't need to hear that man (laughs) yeah i I can't even get to work wow (laughs) what that's crazy that is nuts oh my god you know the, the interesting thing too you mentioned samuel jackson which is weird that you didn't we didn't you didn't list him in the Five thousand people. Nearly every actor in this movie was a somebody at some point in time. Eventually, moved on to being a somebody. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, one thing that I noticed that he, that Spike is able to do that I don't understand how is a lot of times you know a film is made with the hope that in thirty years it'll hold up, which means that it's a little generic for the time. Mm -hmm. But he does not do like he goes straight for this is made when this is made and if you watch it in 30 years you're going to get exactly what it was like when this was made you know what i mean it, there's no i'm trying to think 30 years from now it was literally like i'm going to take every all culture that exists right now and jam it in as much as possible into this almost to the point where it's too much but it's not it's endearing and it makes me remember it even though i was you know born in 1980 but <laughs> the point is is that it's amazing that he can write that and still in 2021 I can watch it and enjoy it rather than just be like oh my gosh it's an 80s it's a terrible 80s <laughs> film cuz like most films in the 80s I just cannot watch I just do not like at all but I think because he's just so pointed on maybe Samuel L. Jackson's character is the reason why that's okay because he says all those things those crazy fun you're sly guy or whatever he says <laughs> that are just so 80s that you just can't help but love it. Yeah, it's a perfect snapshot of like all kinds of personality from the 80s from, yeah. you know, I, I assume this was it was released in 89, which means probably shot in summer of 88. And this takes you right back there. But at the same time, it's still so relevant, especially when you get to the quotes from MLK and and Malcolm. And so I had forgotten how Radio Raheem dies. In my mind, in my memory, he got shot. I forgot that he was choked out. And so watching a movie tell that story from 1989 in light of not just George Floyd, but Eric Garner, and you're just like, wow. I mean, this is an everlasting issue. It's not like he made something up, right? <laughs> like these, this is probably, and maybe Keith, through your research, you know more about where some of those story beats came from. But clearly this is still like pertinent and relevant today. I mean, the draft house right now, I think has it playing literally this week <laughs> that you could go watch it in the theater. So clearly it has uh, some lasting social commentary. Yeah, I actually was trying to figure out, can I go see it tomorrow? <laughs> you know, like actually in the theater. No, definitely. I. It's so eerie. It's just so eerie. And so I had actually forgotten too how he died. And I don't know why I thought it was in the daytime. And so I'm like mm. waiting for a daytime scene for this to happen. 
and you know then it all comes up and it's like somewhat traumatic and but what I realized is at the end they were shouting Howard Beach Howard Beach Howard Beach and I could not understand why and then when in my research Spike was and part of the reason he wrote in two weeks is because he was inspired by a racial incident in Howard Beach where an African-American man was killed. And and so that's why he had the, all the, the writers outside of the burning um, cells, famous pizzeria shouting that. And so then he went ahead and brought real life into the end of the, end of the movie, which I just thought was great. Wow. Well, let me run through a few notes and we'll come back to that ending and maybe dive into it or not. I have no preference there. But the cinematography I found really strange and bewildering at first i haven't so i i probably watched this close to 20 years ago whenever i started really getting heavy into writing myself i started going through the library of must watches i think my earlier experience with spike was probably malcolm x was the first thing i saw that was just a monumental film when it hit and then uh clockers made a really big impact on me and then from there i was just all over the place right 25th hour like you said etc cetera, etc cetera. but revisiting this and having gotten really familiar with spike's later works like a inside man and what have you i was just confounded i was like what is he doing <laughs> but it's all with the purpose for the simple stuff like it's a hot sticky summer right and so we have a very strong yellow tint right a lot of hard lighting and so you feel the hot blistering summer that he's trying to to talk about and reference throughout the film and there's also a lot of light symbolism that that happens like lots of soft references to racial significance like mookie right is wearing a jackie robinson jersey and mookie's name itself sounds like a phonetic reference to martin luther king jr right M-U-K, Mookie, and it's Martin Luther. And so it feels like his naming convention itself might be referencing MLK or maybe a, a combination of MLK and Malcolm X, who's, you know, embedded throughout the visuals of the film through Smiley, right? His pictures that he's selling and trying to, you know, raise his own money for. In the pizza parlor, this is really interesting shot. I watched this twice once just to kind of experience and sit in it and not worry about notes. But watching it that first time, I was just struck there's a shot in the pizza parlor where Ahmad, I think, is is sitting and eating his pizza. And in the the window, right, sausage is written in the, the window in whatever painting. And that casts a shadow on the wall above him where you see all these pictures of all these Italian-Americans. And the the shadow of sausage from the, the window is casting S-A-U-S-A. -S -A. And it's so simple and it's so subtle but if you don't know what you're looking at i think it's a very subtle reference to calling america south africa usa s-a-u-s-a which is to say apartheid and even in that scene in that shot you hear Ahmad talking about you know why don't you have any pictures of black people on your wall what about malcolm x what about nelson mandela right who would be the face of apartheid in south africa and so i feel like he's making these very subtle references to race and uh, racial moments throughout history and uh, throughout american history and throughout uh, even gl greater global history throughout the film that just kind of pointing to this is a racial commentary where this is a movie that's complex and talking about the complexity of race even as it pertains to America. And so the title sequence though, from a cinematography perspective, the title sequence, right? Rosie Perez dancing on a stage of bed -Stuy. So this is setting the style of the movie itself because this is a play. The cinematography often resembles a play and that's established through that long opening sequence because we're on a stage and the stage is, is bed -Stuy itself. And so there's a very strong visual element that's tying together what the rest of the movie is going to be like. And so throughout the movie, right, we have all these wide angle shots of people in in their area, right? Whether they're sitting on a stoop or some people are sitting on a balcony. There's that shot of Robin Harris and his clique as they're sitting underneath a, an umbrella at a table against this red brick wall. And so it's very play-like and everyone has their kind of sections of the, of the stage. And even sometimes we tilt the camera like we're craning our neck to look up at the right of the stage, right? As this character over here is. And so we're constantly kind of moving the camera in ways that feel stage-like. And even 
some of these characters have these soliloquies, right? Where they're going off and talking to the camera, exposing their thoughts, their internal, you know, dialogue. That's a soliloquy and that's very, you know, theater-like. And so this movie is really a play for film and it's very subtle and brilliant. And I think it's just the 3D chess that Spike Lee is playing that nobody else sees. He's he's operating on a whole other level than than any of us. It's just genius. Well, hell, Wes, damn. <laughs> right? Like, this is the kind of thing you're not going to notice if you're not just, like, writing down everything that you're, you're seeing. And the camera work itself is, is really interesting. There's a lot of dolly and crane shots, a very strong sense of establishing in rootedness and groundedness until Ahmad. Ahmad starts trying to rally the troops to protest everybody. And then suddenly we kind of jump into this handheld element and it's creating all this energy and a sense of becoming untethered chaotic or at least this higher energy this higher excitement like something's happening something's building here and then we kind of jump right back to cranes and dollies and very grounded until once again all hell breaks loose in the uh the final confrontation which is a really interesting cinematography you know approach because in that scene when they were in the the pizza shop and then everyone starts busting in right you have that sweet high energy shot of dollying into Ahmad and Radio Rahim and as they burst in through the door blasting the music fight the power and from there everyone is suddenly framed in separate shots you have Sal he's in his own shot you have Rahim and Ahmad in their shot you have the the gang in the booth who is in their shot and then you have the employees they're in each one of their shots and it's smart. There's no real wide shots that puts everyone together in a single frame. And so what it does is it creates a wall reflecting the emotional barrier between characters. Kind of a classic standoff a la like Sergio Leone in a spaghetti western, right? We're kind of establishing all these characters in their own element. And there's they're on their own. Everyone's kind of on their own. And then it also creates more edits because now we have to cut to everyone. And that cutting amps up the energy and the tension. The rhythm of the edit itself is hyping up the moment, which ultimately culminates in these wider shots finally with everyone finally entering the frame together as they intermingle and fight. Now they can all be together and it's all chaos. It's all fighting, which of course culminates in Raheem's death, which is that section of him on the street after he dies, is deeply disorienting by the way they cut. They cut from random angles of we're looking up and suddenly we're inside of a car and it's just jumping around from the, the close-ups and uh, weird, strange, low angles. And it's echoing the confusion of that moment as everyone's experiencing it. It's heavily confusing and deeply disorienting emotionally. Therefore, it's reflected in the cinematography itself. And it's just beautiful and pitch note perfect because after he he leaves the scene right the cops are just throwing his corpse into a, a car and like jogging off as they're escorting the cops themselves out of the neighborhood and then we go back into these much more grounded wide angles of the the community reacting to this and you, you know from there the community is coming together and so now we're putting putting them together as opposed to you know letting Sal and his sons and that gang kind of be all in one shot. Like we're now creating a new wall between Sal and, and the, the community. And it's, it's genius. I mean, I, this is something that will stay in my mind as a way to explore cinematography and to, to think about it for sure. Story and writing wise, God, just rich, unique and complex characters. And what I think makes them complex is that they fight for themselves and they fight for their perspectives and worldview. Spike didn't just write Sal to be a puppet. He allowed Sal to fight for his 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 business and his people, right? Sal never says at the end, you know, I had it coming. No, he's, he's fighting for his business. He's saying, I built this. F your money, you don't get it, Mookie. Like, I built this business every brick, you know, over the last 25 years. I've been a part of this community and I built this business for my family. And look at it. I don't care about the money. And so... That's a very unique and heartfelt perspective because that's what that guy would say. You know, he's he's not thinking necessarily about how he played his part. He's thinking about how what he loved was destroyed as a result of, you know, the the night. And Sal was 
is interesting because he doesn't have black people on his wall, right? That's a, a very key, crucial plot point for this movie. And from Sal's point of view, he's representing his own heritage, you know, a concept of freedom of association that is one of the cornerstones of, of America. Uh, we're a melting pot and you can associate with whoever you want. There's no class technical class structure or caste system as you have in somewhere like in India or England, you know, historically. But his business is also supported by the black neighborhood that he's in. And so does it creates this question that is never really answered. Uh, the question of does him being supported by a black community make it racist for him to not have black people on his wall? Or is that oversimplified and reductive, you know, view to put him in? Does he have a right to, you know, represent his own heritage in his own business? It's a complex question without an obvious answer. And even at the end, after he's kind of punched himself out, right, he's yelling at Mookie and he's just finally kind of gassed out. Then, he, it, you know, kind of devolves back into he's asking Moody was Mookie what he's going to do with uh, now because he actually still cares about Mookie. He's like, what are you going to do now? <laughs> like Now that all this is over, I'm like, what's going to go on with you? What, you know? And so that's one one side of the the kind of rich and uh, complex story and character. But another side, let's look at, you know, Raheem. Raheem is incredibly complex. He's not a great guy. He's not a very likable person, right? Because what likable person walks into a store blasting his boombox and expects to be liked for that? Like, I don't want to be at a gym listening to someone play music out of their phone. That's douchey. Like, get out of here. <laughs> let alone bring in a boombox that I can't even hear myself think, you know, Sal yelling. And so, and then, you know, he, he was rude to the Korean store owners, right? Trying to buy batteries. And he's just incredibly disrespectful and mean spirited. Yet we also fundamentally know he didn't deserve to die or be treated that way. And I love that. It wasn't an easy case of a perfectly nice person getting a raw deal. It's more complex than that as life is just because Rahim was a, a person who had a lot of conflict and aggression doesn't mean he deserved what he got. That's that's too simple. And I have a deep respect for Spike for making it far more complex and uh, nuanced than that. You have to think much bigger than that. And Mookie himself is, you know, very complex. Every one of these characters are complex. Mookie himself, right, seems like a well-adjusted dude until his sister suddenly seems too friendly with Sal. And I love this look that gets exchanged between him and Pino because they just had this conversation. They were just talking about, uh, Pino, who are your favorite black actors? Who's your favorite black, you know, musicians and artists? Like, or just in general, who are your favorite, you know, actors and athletes and you know uh, musicians and yeah it's prince and it's mj or whatever and he's like these are black people and he's like yeah well no and he's like i don't understand how you can have this you know cognitive dissonance and then flash forward you know 20 minutes later his sister is now suddenly getting too friendly and he yanks her out of the store and he gives her the what for <laughs> because he doesn't like that you know these are not cut and dry characters and to such a degree that I think most filmmakers who are writing socially relevant content should revisit this because I think there's a lot of puppeteering that goes on with writing that happens nowadays. And it's not as respectable, I think, from, a, from an avenue of have characters who are fighting for themselves instead of fighting to announce your, your opinion and, and a, a bigger way of thinking. I mean, my only other small note was I've always found Spike's choice of music very interesting because in this film alone, right, he bounces from orchestral drama to jazz and it kind of bleeds into one another. And he does that. He does a lot of orchestration in his in his films, even movies that, you know, another director would just put hip hop in. He's like, no. We're going to have huge, massive, like 100-piece orchestra, and they're going to envelop you in a way that you don't anticipate. And it creates this very deep emotional well to, to feed the story. And so I've always really found his choice of music interesting and uh, enlightening. I don't know. Y'all are free to, like, spit on or, like, comment. I don't know where to go from there. Key, you take it. You take oh, it. Oh, Todd, I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> I feel like he just dropped the bike and, like, it's nap time. Like, I yeah, don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know where yeah, to go. I know. I know. 
maybe okay i i will add i like that you mentioned about the you know the complexity of the characters and stuff and and i think one of the things that was really interesting to me as a a white male watching this film was that i think one of the reasons that that is so that it's so impactful is that he's trying to make the everyday person see themselves in these characters right so the Korean shop owner or the 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 white owner of the the pizza shop that could be me that could be you they're not like bad people right they don't like not they're not like super like i hate everybody that's not white people but they just don't know they don't see their racism you know they don't see their you know like sal for example like all of his favorite you know his favorite his favorite you said his favorite musician was prince his favorite well, uh, yeah oh pino sorry but he just can't admit it for some reason you know like there's this whole this whole aspect of I see someone who's not like me, but I want to be like them because they're good at what they do. So I'm at war with myself. Right. And he's all of that is happening in that conversation. And Spike is able to call that out in the script, in the script by letting you identify with this owner or Pino who's like, I, he doesn't want to be there. The owner who's just, he's a good guy, but he, he like has issues. So he's trying to make everybody see themselves in a character and then pull the rug out from under us a little bit. Like, Hey, wait a minute. Do you like Michael Jordan? You probably like Michael Jordan and you probably like Prince. I don't care what color you are, what nationality <laughs> probably like those. Let's call that out a little bit. Okay. Like, why aren't these people on the wall? You know what? You're in a you know predominantly African American neighborhood. Why not embrace that a little bit? Like, let's call that out a little bit. And I love that. I love that he's able to to make that those characters that complex and to call these things out, pull the rug underneath out from underneath the viewer a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And it's so sad that at the end, I uh, like you said, watching this at the end when when Radio Raheem dies thinking, oh my God, in 2020, that exact thing <laughs> happened. I mean, but even worse, even more aggressively terrible, to, in, a, in an aggressively terrible way, it happened 30 years later. You know, what has changed? Unbelievable that that still has the staying power and how sad that it still has the staying power. But I remember my jaw was on the ground thinking, wow, did he, <laughs> could he see the future? I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Kia would love your thoughts. Yeah. So I know I talked about living in Brooklyn, Queens and Manhattan, but I spent most of my time in Queens. My parents still live there. And so probably 30 years ago, my parents moved me to this, an Italian and Irish neighborhood. And it's where they still live. And so I've seen the neighborhood change over the years. Some of the Italian and Irish people have moved out. Some have remained, but it's definitely gotten like a little bit more of a melanated ethnic set of, you know, diverse families there. And there is a pizza joint. And I went there in 2019 because I was leaving my mom's house and heading to the airport and we needed food for the family. And I went in and I grabbed things. And it was just so, it's just so colorful, right? It's just, it wasn't, it's not primarily a black constituency of customers or anything. It was just everyone. And it's so loud and amazing and fun. And you just go in. And this is the thing. If you don't know how to order at like a New York deli <laughs> or pizzeria, you're just going to get jumped. Like somebody's just going to jump ahead of you because they're thinking, you don't know what you're doing. Like you, you need to watch us so that you can actually get your order. And, you know, it's really, just like if you want a turkey sandwich you're like cracked pepper turkey with with swiss and you yell it out and it's like on the, the the bread you want and they're like all right boss and then they move to the next one like it's just so it's just such a conveyor belt so anyway i can re i can relate to this my neighborhood was definitely quieter than this like <laughs> it wasn't this and and probably purposely so my parents like moving us from one neighborhood to another but what i thought was so fascinating is that this is exactly what you see in New York. You see, you know, a family of a certain ethnic origin moving into another neighborhood to start their business. And it's it's all over. And I don't, it's, so it's not irregular to see at all. What I found was so fascinating was how upset Pino was as soon as the movie started. Like, there was no ramp up, right? He just started angry. And to the point where I was counting how many times he said, get a broom and sweep the front. You know, like the point where he yelled it was three times and he just stood out there. And I was like, well, he's this is obviously a problem. He doesn't want to be here. And he doesn't realize how much of a problem he is. And I and I really love this character. And I really I love John Tutor in general. And anytime he's in something, I'm like, oh, well, I'm watching that. Like, I just <laughs> I'm just gonna watch it. But then later on, 
when his when Sal says like why are you so full of anger really trying to get to what what is what is it and he says well my friends make fun of me that he is like spending his days in this African-American neighborhood all day. It's just not not his heritage, right? And so it's just so interesting. Like that's the point that he actually says what's wrong. It's like he's made, getting made fun of by his friends. He's obviously friends with Mookie on some level, but he doesn't realize like the depth of, of hate that he is spewing out in all his commentary. And and I really like Sal and how complex he is, as you, you both said, because he does love these people you know he's like these people grew up on my food no i'm not leaving i've been here 25 years like you know how much that means to me that they grew up on my food and even i think her name is l the mm -hmm. the girl in the in the foursome she's yeah. like i eat sal i grew up on sal's food so it's just it's so complimentary you know it's just like this is this is just is a symbiotic relationship and i love that they that he decided to depict that because i don't know that in my experience, I haven't seen this in many different parts of America, just especially in this uh, what I call like a walking culture. Right. Because in New York, it's such a walking culture. You live your life bumping into people all day, whether you want to or not, even in a city of, I think, two million on the island and nine million coming into Manhattan. You'd be surprised how often you see people, you know, just accidentally out on the street because people are just constantly crossing paths whereas in cars you don't know how many people that you know that you pass because you're in this contained in space and you just drive by and you go about your business you drive into your garage and you close your door and you don't say hi to anyone you know and so it's just it's just a very interactive culture and so radio rahim is a little bit of a jerk however i feel like it's like all he has right this is like all he has. He has his music, right? And so he's expressing it and it means a lot to him and he's playing public enemy. And obviously there's a reason, very personal, that that's what they're playing, you know, and, and wanting to talk about the relationships with many types of different people and, and people of color. And and so, yeah, he's getting on people's nerves. The Puerto Ricans on the steps, he gets on their nerves. Like other people are like, what are you doing? But they kind of respect him. They respect his space. Now, granted, when Juan Carlos Esposito kind of amps him up when when bugging out kind of amps him up i'm like you know this this would have been a cool night if if bugging out had listened to to mookie when mookie said come back in a week when cooler heads prevail mm -hmm. come back in a week but he did no such thing it was that and it was this day 24 hours in this day you know and i'm looking at radio rahim and sal keeps picking up this bat and so even though there hadn't been any violence at that point. Every time he gets angry, he picks up this bat. Mm -hmm. So I'm watching every time he picks it up. He picks it up when Bugging Out was talking about the pictures on the wall. And even though everyone in the movie is verbally violent to each other <laughs> throughout the whole thing, <laughs> the first actual physical violence is when Sal takes it to the radio. And that's when I was like, well... I just wish it hadn't gone to that point because for so long in most of the movie, people yelled at each other, cursed at each other, you know, and it was like, well, that's it. Go away. And then they would disperse. But this was the point. But then Radio Rahim took it another level and then he attacked a person. So my husband and I were debating this last night. Like, Sal shouldn't have taken the bat to the radio, right? Because that's like Correct. an actual person's yep. property that yep. is just so precious to him. But then Radio Rahim shouldn't have taken his hands to a person. Probably the equivalent of that would have been maybe like destroying a table in the restaurant or something, or maybe even, you know, maybe even throwing the table out the glass window. But mm -hmm. that would have been property for property, right? Not yeah. property for person. So just so just, just so many things to this, uh, and it's so it's so layered and beautiful, and I just yeah love it. Concurred. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, but does it matter? I guess would be the next question. Which part? Yeah, Sal shouldn't have taken the bat to the radio, but he, you know, Raheem shouldn't have hit a per well. Well, just uh, the reason I bring it up is because it continues, right? Because yeah. then the cops yeah. escalate it to the next level, right? It's mm, like totally. It's like it's it's not eye for an eye, not like that makes sense anyway. But it goes, it goes, it just amps up every single time. It just goes to a next level, and so I just thought that was an interesting way that they that they portrayed that how yeah, how quickly violence escalates. My totally. mom used Completely. to date a guy, and he used to have a phrase. I don't play to get even, I play to get ahead. Like anytime you would like punch us or rough us up, you try to go like, oh, okay, I'm a eye for an eye. And no one ever likes that apparently. Like, I don't know why the idea of like, I have to one up you, I have to establish dominance and assert myself as someone above you that as if everything has to have a pecking order. And I don't know if that's just part of the human condition or part of our culture. 
I have I don't know. No, it's an interesting point. I'll be I hadn't really considered that either. It's like Sal is the kind of guy who demands respect from his kids and from anybody who eats in his whatever respect means to him, right? Respect to mean different things to different people. He's the kind of guy that demands respect because I've I built this with my bare hands and I've been here for years and this is my community. And Rahim is the same, right? That's his definition of his character. He's even the the volume battle that they had, you know, and he had to win. Like that was his that was his thing. No matter where he goes, you're going to, you know, you're going to respect me. And so those two guys clashing and maybe that's a message of of guys, what is respect? Does it really matter that much? You know, because it could end, it could end really poorly. It could end really badly. So maybe just chill out everybody, you know, a little bit, maybe. Word. I don't know. <laughs> Word. I like it. Yeah. I know I have a sudden like urge to suddenly, you know, start incorporating living large uh, yeah. back into my vocabulary. Like, oh, please do. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so crucial. Yeah. Go buy, go buy that game stock. Live large. Yeah. <laughs> GameStop stock living large oh my god well nice any final thoughts things that you know you want to touch on i feel like i just want to talk about mookie a little bit more i mean he has multiple storylines going on right it was not just his job but then also with tina Mm -hmm. and his son and tina's mom just being upset at everyone and how their family is or is not working out so another thing that i feel like and, and please correct me if i'm wrong if you've had different experiences to add to it but another thing that i I've found over the years and I've spoken to with friends over the years is how many New Yorkers have jobs that in other cities would go to teenagers, right? Like a pizza delivery person. Not saying that there's anything wrong with an adult having that job, but I I feel like the more suburban places I go, those tend to go to more teenagers or smaller cities, things like that. And so it's just really interesting. It's like, how long is Mookie going to be able to provide for his family in the way he's trying to do so as a pizza delivery person? I mean, so it seems like he was making decent money for the 80s and I don't even know where he's paying rent, if he's paying rent at all, you know, so maybe maybe it is okay. But I, I, I'm often drawn to the opportunities that people have in the places that they live and whether or not they're even have the chances to maybe go to another station in life if that's what they desire. And, you know, so I'm looking at this like she, Tina wants to make sure that he's present and also providing he's counting money, assuming that that's some of that is going to go to that son, that relationship, things like that, trying to move out of his sisters or live on his own. And that was definitely a, a strong conversation that they had in the middle um, in the beginning of the film, you know, and so I'm just looking at this like Mookie's ability or to have this this relationship with this neighborhood, with this pizzeria is really what keeps this going. It's like he, you know, he disappears because he's trying to continue relationships with Tina and things like that, or even just like deepen his friendships in the neighborhood or even just take a shower in the middle of a hot day. But I just think it's interesting how that is part is weaved into it. Just this this idea of his pizza delivery job. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because you, you're right. They do call it out and he clearly doesn't have like an exit strategy. And it's, it seems like the kind of thing that he probably started when he was a teenager and he just never left. And so there is an aspect of being too comfortable in your surroundings and needing to have something happen. Ideally, not have your job completely like blown up, but, you know, <laughs> find find another avenue. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's. I hadn't really considered, you know, his bigger storyline that's that's there. It's clearly there. He also takes he's he kind of like tries to keep the peace a lot, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. Well, in some ways, I guess not with Pino's brother. He tells him to punch him, <laughs> you know, but in, in a way that's a little bit of like it's not keeping the peace, but it's trying to make things better. And in oh. some in some cases, it seems like a relationship like that. It, you kind of. Because they're brothers, maybe that is the only way that he could have he could get respect, you know. Yeah. But he, he's like advising him, and and you know takes his friend outside when stay, things get hot in the beginning, and he tells him to Sal tells him to leave. So that's another role of his is keeping the peace. Yeah, there's so many layers to him, and then to uh, Demare too, who ends up saving that kid at the end. You know, kind of like redeeming that character 
like he, I guess he gets a little bit of redemption. He's, he's the, the drunk guy on the block, but they always look out for each other. Uh, you know, yeah, they yell at each other and they, and they get to sick of each other at times, but they're always, it's, it's always like still one unit. It's still like one, one group. Uh, I don't know that there's just so many layers, but yeah, Mookie is, I can't pick another character from another film that had, that has quite as many layers, you know, like at least not off the top of my head. Like there's so many things that are going on in his life, but at the same time, he's not just looking out for himself. He's looking out for the other people, not just that he works with, but the other people on the block, the entire block really, it feels like. Exactly. And that's what I was trying to say. You said it much better than the words that were coming out of my mouth. That's exactly what <laughs> no, I, I no. meant. It's like he really is, you know, the glue between a lot of these relationships and to kind of keep people a little bit more stable or encouraged or yeah. just engaged. Yeah. And then Smiley, the, the guy who plays Smiley, he actually wasn't a part of the original cast, but he kept asking to be in the film. <laughs> <laughs> I this is according to wikipedia so hopefully it's correct but I, I just i just thought that was just like fascinating and the one of the scenes that stuck out to me is when smiley is spinning in the middle of the street and holding his hands on his ears and he's just trying to block it all out and i felt like you know even though he's the more challenged character he felt the most relatable it's like especially all that's gone on in the past year or six hundred three hundred whatever <laughs> You just kind of want, sometimes you just want to block it out. You know what I mean? And so I just felt like that in that moment that he's just like, stop, like make it stop. I loved him. Yeah, he was great. Gosh, I loved him. He was my favorite character in the entire film for whatever reason. I just like had this joy and love every time he was on screen. And I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it was because he was just, he was out there doing something that someone who stuttered should be very afraid to do. You know, he's like has pamphlets and he's trying to, to preach you know, like goodness from MLK and like all of these things. And he's just, there's like this wonderful guy, but yeah. Anyway, I loved him. I agree. Totally. Um, yeah. Smiley's great. Whenever there was like craziness going on, he was just a little beam of like happiness for me. It felt <laughs> like in the film. And going back to like 89 versus 2021, like there are aspects that this could only live in that era. Like there's a casual racism to Saul and Pino that would never, I can't imagine there's too many workplaces right now where you can just kind of casually throw an N-bomb out there and your black employee is like, oh, he doesn't mean nothing by it. Like, I doubt that's probably too prevalent now. But in 89, that made sense. There was this idea of we're just accepting some of these people who are casually have racist vocabulary and are able to somehow divorce it from what they actually believe. I feel like I, I grew up around people that would on the one hand, like I had grew up in a fairly, very small town, but fairly diverse. And I, had, I remember this kid that was super country and he and this other kid that was a black kid, they would get into it endlessly these racial fights and then on other days they would be absolutely cool and like buddies and it was just this wild thing that i could never wrap my head around like that dude yesterday was calling you an in and today like y'all are over here sharing pizza like i don't i i don't understand what what's going on but there's something that they are able to clearly kind of connect that goes beyond their their differences on the good days at least and maybe there's a part of them that wants to connect, that has a need to see beyond the the racial animus that that causes all that conflict. And I would hope I, I don't know that there's as much, you know, in, in 2021 that people see someone and they have they have a bigger desire to feel the the differences, I think, today and than to try to push through that and see the other aspects of their humanity. And so in, in that kind of way, I feel like the year that this came out speaks completely differently than it, than if this movie were to come out today. It speaks to a different era on some level. I don't know. At least it feels like it. <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. I, no, I, like, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's things that are hard Got to it. reconcile. Yeah. Nice. Well, what are you going to recommend this week? All right. Well, I, I mean, you got to stick with, with, with Spike. So I'll just go with his, one of his most recent Black Klansmen 
saw that his 2018 release and his incredible, incredible film. And what's his name? John David Washington was amazing. And it was the first time I really saw him in anything. Um, he might've done some other stuff before. I'm sure he did, but when he was incredible in that film. And I just, I just loved the way it was shot. And, uh, I actually liked Adam driver's character in it a lot. And I'm not a super crazy Adam driver fan, but I think he is an amazing actor in this film. He was, he's really strong in it. So nice. Well done. All right, Key, what do you got? I'm going to go with, so on the John David Washington, I'm just going to head over there. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and and recommend this controversial thing we're going to discuss later called Malcolm and Marie, because on my second rewatch, I just feel like the acting is just stand doubt I I just, yeah, and we'll talk about that more. But if you can handle it, <laughs> <laughs> the acting is really interesting to watch. Yeah, nice. Okay. I was secretly hoping you were going to recommend Judas and the Black Messiah because because you're are you going to recommend it no but now i feel like i feel really upset that no one's recommending it because (laughs) i feel absolutely compelled i recently within the last month uh read the autobiography of malcolm x as told to alex haley and watching this i was completely struck with how much overlap there is with that book specifically the book i mean the movie's worth watching and all that you know that that for one the overlap you know spike directed malcolm x which is ins- completely inspired by the the autobiography and the movie you know do the right thing also obviously contains references to malcolm x and there's also this very quick light reference to roots right i think he's talking to his sister mookie and he makes a reference like i'm not kunta kente and that's a reference to roots which was written by alex haley and then You also have Ossie Davis, who plays the mayor, wrote an epilogue in the book of uh, the autobiography and also gave a eulogy at Malcolm's funeral. And so, so much overlap. But even beyond that, I think there's something that you don't see and do the right thing that is also a reference to the autobiography. And that's the lack of any black owners. There's no black businesses in Bed-Stuy in this movie. Like you have a, a white-owned pizzeria and then you have Korean-owned uh, corner store, but there's no black-owned businesses. And so I would be surprised if there wasn't some inspiration directly from that because Malcolm X talks a lot about how uh, there's a lot of Jewish businesses in black communities, and yet there's very little Jewish community within those communities. Like it's not like, oh, we're Jews, Jews and blacks living together. Instead, it's like, Oh no, we're going to come in and and you know take take your money, but not participate in your community otherwise. And that's that was a topic within the autobiography that Malcolm X really talked a lot about. And so I feel like that's a very light reference that Spike is is was influenced by or, um, from the book. And so yeah, so I'm going to recommend reading that book. It's incredibly well written. The way Malcolm discusses his life in that book was kind of earth shattering like because he'll he'll reference and discuss an era of his life and the amount of memory he has like i have a really good memory on my life better than most i would say and he blows me completely out of the water like it's astounding how much he remembers from every aspect of his life and the way and the 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 part that really blew me away was the way he talks about these eras is so intelligent because he's talking about them in a from a third person perspective in hindsight, but also using the language that he would have used in that point of his life. So if he's talking about being a teenager in, in Harlem, right, he's using the, the lingo that he used as a teenager in Harlem. And whenever he graduates to becoming a Muslim, he starts referencing like uh, white people no longer are referenced as white people. They are now white devils and some kind, sometimes even truncated down to the devils. Like the devils brought me into their office to have a conversation with them. And you automatically know who he's referencing. And if you're white and reading this, you might feel ostracized if you don't understand the complexity that he's writing with, because he's he's trying to communicate to you who he was in that moment, because the complexity of Malcolm X is widely misunderstood by uh, white people. And if you get through the entire book, you will begin to understand how completely involved in, in complex his thinking was in the way his, his worldview was shaped and still evolving at his death. And it certainly makes you mourn, you know, losing that voice because he was 
you know, obviously in line with Martin and, you know, so many other of his contemporaries that, you know, just, yeah. So go read it. You know, I'm, I'm not nearly doing justice to it, but it's worth reading. It's a hard read. It takes a while, but it's absolutely worth the, the time investment. And it's just beautiful. Anyway, so stay tuned next week. <laughs> <laughs> when we cover something just as profound and heavy it's called underwater it's <laughs> a sci-fi horror film starring Kristen stewart it's really good honestly like uh, go watch the movie and and get ready for that episode because i think we have a lot of fun and lighthearted discussion in ways that you have not heard us discuss before so don't forget subscribe review us on itunes Big shout out. We have a new patron subscriber, Charlie, Parasite Charlie, as he is now and forever known. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Parasite Charlie is our our, our new subscriber. So appreciate you, Charles. And also want to give a shout out to everybody. Uh, Hannah gave us some love, you know, on the on the gram. And Izzy Mm -hmm. reached out to check up on us during the snow apocalypse that we just underwent i don't know about y'all i went i came through relatively unscathed like i lost uh, water and and heat for four or five days but nothing really to complain about to be completely honest because i was still able to i had electricity had a tiny tiny space heater so me and my roommate took turns heating our rooms up (laughs) so that we weren't sleeping in 50 degree weather the entire night yeah so thank you izzy and everybody if you want to drop a note and comment on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash do the right thing and our quote of the day is from nelson mandela i like friends who have independent minds because they tend to make you see problems from all angles i couldn't agree more yeah it's brilliant i mean it's great it's amazing i think one of the things that's breaking my heart now in our culture is all the echo chambers and it just it's creating a problem that people aren't appreciating which is a lack of diversity of thought when you when you stop listening to other sides no matter how stupid they are and how wrong you think they are you stop empathizing and this goes to the quote from martin luther right at the end of the uh, of the film like you stop seeing people and you just start seeing enemies and and i think that starts with having a diversity of opinion and thought and our media is you know i think a massive culprit you can't turn on anybody and see you know 360 degrees of every issue or any issue every issue one issue like you can't find an issue everything is either from the perspective of the left or the right or the left and the right people always think that there's only two sides to an issue and you know there's i don't want to go too far down the the rabbit hole here but there's so many more ways to look at any given issue than just left or right and i think that starts with having friends who are independent minded and seeing the world from a a different you know vantage than than yourself couldn't agree more stay tuned we hopefully are going to do a quick patron bonus segment where we discuss Malcolm and Marie. I'm assuming Todd had a minute to at least watch some of it. And if if not, then maybe he can moderate <laughs> like <laughs> me and Keith. But yeah, stay tuned for that if you're a Patreon subscriber. And if you're not, shame. Shame. No, you're fine. <laughs> thank you for listening anyway. And thank you, Keith, so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation and meeting you and and finding out more about you. Where can anybody go to see any of your any of your work or or catch up with you or connect with you? Sure. So on social media, it's just at Hey Keyhain. So H E Y K E I H A Y N E S. Um, and then you can find my podcast connected to that as well if you if you look in those bios. So, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you again. And thank you all of you for listening to us and staying with us this whole time. And like Wes said, please subscribe, review us on, on, on iTunes or anywhere. It really helps out. And make suggestions. We, we would love to hear what you'd like to have us uh, review. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. I'm Key. Go watch the movies. Mm-hmm.